Boko Haram is one of the most well-known global terrorist organizations. They have killed thousands of people and displaced millions of West Africans. While widespread journalistic reporting on the group tries to keep up with their activities, few have placed them in a rich historical context to understand how religion and politics intersect. In Boko Haram, the history of an African jihadist movement, Alexander Thurston traces the origins of the jihadist group through political events, networks of Islamic learning, and the personal charisma of individual religious leaders. In his previous book, Salafism in Nigeria, Islam, Preaching, and Politics, Thurston provides background on Salafis in Nigeria that enables us to understand Boko Haram as part of a global Salafi movement. In our conversation, we discuss the Nigerian religious field, the characteristics of Salafism and its canonization, Boko Haram's founder, Muhammad Yusuf, Nigerian Muslims at the Islamic University of Medina, North-South Nigerian social and political disparities, local Salafi responses to the new leadership of Abu Bakr Shakal, the 2014 kidnapping of 276 girls, recent ties to ISIS, international intervention, and reflections on religious violence. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Alex Thurston about Boko Haram, the history of an African jihadist movement published with Princeton University Press in 2017. Welcome, Alex. How are you doing? Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your uh, your scholarship. Um, but uh, we always have a tradition here at New Books in Islamic Studies of starting with a little bit about uh, the scholars themselves. So could you, you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to Islamic studies, um, what brought you to study uh, African Muslims? Uh, were there any mentors or moments that were uh, specifically influential in your trajectory? Sure. So I came into undergrad as, as a religion major. I knew that I wanted to study all kinds of different religions and started taking different kinds of courses. And the courses on Islam just somehow gripped me the most and, and stood out to me the most. And in particular, a course on Sufism with uh, Suleiman Bashir Jan, who was at Northwestern at the time and, and is now at Columbia. And um, Bashir is from Senegal. And so, you know, as I worked with him on my, you know, senior thesis and, and independent studies and so forth, uh, by the end, I, I felt, you know, that I really wanted to see a kind of a living Muslim society to, to know what that was like. And so... Uh, he was very, you know, helpful in, in uh, supporting my application for a Fulbright scholarship, which took me to, to Senegal in 2006, 2007, uh, to look at Muslim youth movements there. And while I was there, I started reading much more broadly about uh, Islam in Africa and Islam in West Africa, and, um, you know, really became, you know, fascinated by, by Nigeria and by the case of Nigeria, and in particular reading Osman Khan's book, uh, Muslim Modernity in Postcolonial Nigeria, really, you know, I think set me on the path to, to some of the work that I've done. Uh, so after that, I, I came to Georgetown for an MA in Arab Studies and, you know, looked there at connections between uh, Nigeria and the Arab world, and then went to Northwestern for a PhD in Religious Studies and, and focused there on uh, Islam in Northern Nigeria. Now, uh, this this is your second book, um, and uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how this book uh, emerged as a project for you. Um, talk uh, talk about how it perhaps relates to your broader scholarship. It's 
uh, related to your first book um, and perhaps even kind of extending from in, in many ways. Um, so could you talk about how this, this book project came about? Sure. So, you know, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I started to, uh, I started a blog in, in 2009 called Sahel Blog that followed, you know, the the politics and, and religious developments as best I could in the Sahel region of, of Africa, but also in, in the northern part of Nigeria. And, you know, the, the founding of the blog kind of coincided with the mass uprising by Boko Haram in the summer of 2009. And so over the years, Boko Haram was something that I that I paid close attention to. And, you know, then over time, I, I was asked to write different things about it. And, and ultimately, that culminated with with Princeton asking me to, to write this book. But it's also uh, a direct kind of continuation of some of the work that I had done on, on nonviolent Salafi movements in, in Nigeria. Uh, Boko Haram is, is kind of a, a fringe offshoot of, of some of the mainstream uh, you know, Salafi network in the country. Now, uh, as you already state here, right, Salafism is kind of central to understanding Boko Haram. Um, and in this this book, Salafism in Nigeria, Islam, Preaching and Politics, you provide kind of a, a richer context for, for understanding this. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about some of the defining characteristics um, of Salafism and what was the canonization process that gave it authority? Sure. So, you know, Salafism, in, in my understanding, I mean, one of the original, you know, questions that, that motivated that book is, you know, how do we understand people's claims to be living out the pure Islam of, of the Salaf, you know, of, of the first three generations of, of the Muslim community? Um, and so I, you know, getting into kind of Salafism, you can define it in, in multiple different ways. I mean, the kind of most common way, you know, and here I think, you know, scholars and, and Salafis, you know, Western scholars and Salafis would, would maybe agree to some extent is, you know, you can define it as a theological position, um, a theological position that, that upholds a very strict notion of, of Tawheed or, or monotheism and that in particular, you know, interprets uh, Quranic descriptions of the, the attributes of God in a very um, literalist and, and strict way. But there are other kinds of, you know, elements of Salafism. Uh, you know, in my understanding, Salafism is also a movement that um, rejects the, you know, uh, main legal schools in, in Sunni Islam and claims to work directly from the, you know, the Quran and the Sunnah. Um, that point can be contentious. You know, some people feel it's possible to pair kind of Salafi theology with, uh, you know, a Sunni madhab or, a, um, you know, Sunni school of law. Um, but from my mind, what's kind of full Salafism is, is this, you know, sweeping claim to be to be working directly from the sources and to be living directly as the, um, you know, the earliest Muslims did. The, the canonization process, though, that you mentioned, I mean, this is a this is kind of a key argument of, of the first book is the idea that uh, Salafis have an intellectual tradition, that there's more to contemporary Salafism than just an unmediated interaction with with the you know the original sources of the islamic tradition that salafis have a list of figures over time you know whom they consider authoritative one of the the main ones being you know ibn Taymiyyah, um you know the the medieval theologian uh 
so the canon in some sense is, is a list of, you know, authors and thinkers from across time, you know, whom Salafis today look to as, as authorities. But even in that case, I mean, my, you know, my argument in the book is that even with somebody like Ibn Taymiyyah, contemporary Salafis are not interacting with that person in an unmediated way, that there's been this kind of uh, buildup of, you know, texts and then disciplining of the texts, you know, through editing, through footnotes, through, um, you know, efforts to do what's called tahrij and to, to evaluate and, and rank the, you know, hadith reports that are used. So there's this kind of, again, you know, buildup of, of a literature and a canon. And, and, you know, the first book argues that, that this canon is, is central to what contemporary Salafism means and, and that in a sense, um, contemporary, in a key sense, contemporary Salafism is, is a movement that was born in the 20th century in large part through this canonization process. And the canonization process, um, if I'm if I'm reading your first book correctly, also is uh, socialized in very particular ways. Um, and uh, the Islamic University of Medina plays this kind of central role uh, in that, or at least a key role. Um, so, how did the university serve as a, a node in spreading this kind of canonized form of Salafism? And uh, to kind of lead it into the the Boko Haram book. How, how did this factor into shaping uh, the Nigerian religious landscape of the, the 70s up until 2000? The Islamic University of Medina, which was founded in, in 1961 in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, by the, the Saudi Arabian monarchy, is, is a key kind of actor in the canonization process in, in a few different ways. You know, for one thing, it was a hub for spreading the canon. So from the beginning, the university was conceived much more as a place where foreigners would come to study and, and to be shaped as, as preachers and missionaries in particular ways. Um, it was conceived much more for foreigners than for, for Saudis. Um, and it was intended that graduates would, would mostly leave the country and go back to their home countries to spread uh, you know, Salafi Islam. The university was also... You know, and so the content of the curriculum, you know, would would revolve around that canon that I mentioned. Then, too, uh, the university was a hub for continuing to produce the canon. So, you know, they had a, a major library, have a major library. Um, it was a site where, you know, different scholars worked, where, um, you know, theses would be published and, and those theses would themselves contribute to kind of disciplining and refining and building this canon. So... One of the main countries that the Islamic University of Medina came to focus on was was Nigeria. You know, Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa. Uh, it has a long and rich, you know, Islamic tradition. Uh, you know, of course, you know, a, a vast Muslim community uh, that the Saudis, you know, felt was in need of of guidance and change. So, you know, from the beginning, there were major efforts to recruit Nigerians to come to the university. Some of those early efforts really stumbled. So they recruited Nigerians who were not a good fit for the university, who had a really bad time when they came there, you know, who wrote letters back to um, authorities in northern Nigeria saying, why, why have you sent us here? We're not learning anything. All they do is insult Sufism, you know, take us somewhere else, basically, where, where we'll really learn something. So, you know, it was really kind of awkward in the beginning. Uh, but over time, you know, there was kind of a confluence of factors. For one thing, sort of Salafi or proto-Salafi movements were growing within Nigeria, you know, initially propagated by the graduates of, of British colonial schools. Uh, and then at the same time, the Islamic University of Medina was getting more sophisticated in its outreach. 
um, conducting what they called the Daura or the, the study or recruitment tour where they would come, you know, to all kinds of countries around the world uh, and recruit people who were a much better fit for the university. So starting, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, they started to recruit people again who were a better fit and starting in the 80s and especially the 90s, you had people coming back with degrees from the university who became extremely influential. Uh, and one of them was was Jafar Mahmoud Adam, who uh, was a graduate of the university and, and was also a mentor of, of Muhammad Yusuf for a time. And Yusuf was the, the founder of Boko Haram. Now, uh, tell, tell us about Muhammad Yusuf. He's the kind of central character in developing this. Um, and as you, you mentioned, right, he's part of this kind of... Um, growing uh, or emerging kind of Salafi uh, positioning that's happening in Nigeria. Uh, where does he fit into the kind of religious field, as you call it, uh, in, 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 his, uh, in the early years? Yeah, so, I mean, one thing to say up front is that a lot of his early life is, is not really clear. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, rumors and, and accusations and, you know, from Boko Haram's side, there are hagiographies and so forth. Um, but his kind of, even the first sort of, you know, 30 years of his life is a bit really unclear what, what itinerary he took. But he was born in 1970, and so he was roughly the same age as, as some of the key, you know, graduates of the Islamic University of Medina from his generation. But he was not one of those selected to attend the university. So his own education may have been really quite rudimentary. He seems to have had a, um, you know a classical kind of, you know, Quran school education and, and some higher Islamic studies beyond that. Um, you know, one of the hagiographies talks about him, you know, kind of, uh, you know, traveling around northern Nigeria as a, as a youth, you know, seeking knowledge and so forth, which would have been part of the kind of classical, you know, scholarly paradigm in, in the area. Um, by, you know, the 1990s, though, it seems that he was gravitating toward the Salafi movement. He may have passed through, you know, the kind of um, small but but outspoken uh, Shi movement in the country. He may not. But in any case, by the late 1990s, he seems to have really gravitated toward the Salafis and become a protege of, of Jafar Mahmoud Adam. Um, so in a way, his life can be read as, as you know, yeah, the the story of just an individual within this increasingly complicated religious field in, in the last decades of the 20th century in Nigeria, kind of uh, finding his way. Now, uh, p- part of the, the Boko Haram book uh, is you, you definitely uh, place it within a local context uh, as opposed to just kind of making generalizations, which I guess other uh, at least kind of journalistic reporting might do uh, and maybe even some scholarship. But uh can you help us understand this kind of broader social, political, religious context? Uh, what what are some of the key factors uh, for understanding uh, the emergence of Boko Haram? What what does the religious field look like? What does the social environment look like in terms of politics and economics and and, and these kind of things? What what do uh, what does the novice need to know in order to to really understand your project? Here maybe it'd be helpful to say a little bit about the kinds of arguments that I'm that I'm you know you know working against or or at least trying to qualify. I mean, one key kind of argument about Boko Haram has been the idea that it is a product of poverty and corruption and you know 
regional disparities in, in Nigeria, you know, 100%, and that there's no religious dimension or, or that, you know, religion is simply a kind of, a, you know, a veneer over what's basically just a kind of a, a social movement. Um, for me, I think that, you know, there's some uh, validity to that kind of, you know, analysis, but that, but that the religious dimension needs to be brought in in a serious way and, and that Boko Haram needs to be looked at as kind of a multi-factor uh, phenomenon. So for me, some of the key factors include, I mean, you know, for one thing, so Nigeria was became independent in 1960, you know, 10 years before Muhammad Yusuf was born. And, and there's no question that the, the history of the country has been very turbulent since then. You know, uh, military coups, you know, starting in 1966. Um, for most of Muhammad Yusuf's, you know, early life, the country was, you know, under military rule with, with very brief kinds of, you know, interruptions. Uh, you know, or efforts at, at democracy. Uh, so there were all kinds of trends taking place during his lifetime. I mean, massive urbanization that was oftentimes, you know, really kind of ad hoc and, and disruptive. And that was the case too in, in Maiduguri, which is the largest city in northeastern Nigeria and the city where he eventually came to settle. Um, there were also kind of repeated efforts to reimagine, you know, what local government meant and what the state meant. Uh, then Alongside that, you get all these kinds of different developments in, in the religious field. So some of which, you know, we already mentioned, um, there was the growth of Salafism, the growth of all kinds of other, uh, you know, kind of contestatory movements, you know, the, the Shi'i movement that I mentioned, uh, you know, even more kind of fringe movements, some of which were violent. Um, and then alongside that, alongside the, the growth of all these new voices, you had, um, severe challenges to to the older models of, of religious authority. So previously, there had been a kind of a dual model that revolved around the figure of the hereditary Muslim ruler and the Sufi sheikh. So the hereditary Muslim rulers were figures who had been in power in some cases since the 19th century, who had, uh, you know, preserved their power in modified form under British colonialism and who had emerged into the post-colonial period um, still with significant you know, respect and, and status. Um, the Sufi sheikhs, you know, uh, were, of course, figures who, you know, represented Sufi orders, which also had a, a long, you know, history in the region um, and who, you know, had major, uh, you know, status and respect in society. So, you know, both of those kinds of figures, the, the hereditary ruler and the Sufi sheikh, I mean, both of them, of course, preserved tremendous influence till the present. But, you know, in the 1970s and after the the challenges to their authority became more and more severe. Um, you know, their ability to kind of have surveillance and and you know to be able to dictate uh, community life started to decline. Um, open forms of kind of disrespect emerged, and so you know Boko Haram I think needs to be understood in this context of of a religious field that was that was fragmenting and that was you know kind of breaking open and in. in uh, new and destabilizing ways. Now, uh, the, the other part of this, which uh, you, you kind of highlight is the, the, the politics to, uh, in a kind of generalized sense. Um, what Could you talk a little bit about some of the, the, the kind of uh, dynamics of uh, Nigerian politics at the time? Uh, you mentioned, mentioned kind of a few characteristics that you feel like are, are affecting kind of uh, the religious response in a way, so... Yeah, 
Yeah, so, you know, I, I should say a lot of the book is about this this interaction, you know, that I see between between religion and politics. And so, you know, where kind of where we really can start to follow the story of, of Muhammad Yusuf is, is after 1999. So Nigeria returned to democracy in, in 1999 or returned to, you know, whatever we might call it, you know, multi-party civilian competition or, or civilian rule um, because it's been more or less democratic at different times. Uh, but, you know, that being said, uh, elections can be really fierce, you know, cutthroat occasions of competition for power uh, during, you know, Yusuf's lifetime or, or during the, you know, initial period after 1999, um, there was little question about who was going to win, uh, the presidency. You know, there was one party that was in power, um, from 1999 until 2015, but at the state level, things really could be quite competitive. Um, so one key moment in, in Muhammad Yusuf's, uh, evolution was the 2003 election in Borno state. Um, the state where he had settled, um, where kind of the needs of politicians to create coalitions and, and to, you know, build power against their rivals gave Yusuf an opening to, um, to ally himself with, with the aspirant who eventually won the, the gubernatorial race that year. Now, the, the early uh, establishment of the movement um, was characterized by uh, a period of preaching, uh, you tell us. Um, what what were some of the early developments um, of Boko Haram, and then uh, what what exactly kind of shifted the movement uh, at the end of the the early two thousands? So, I mean, one other thing to mention about the the politics of this time is that Nigeria has a federal system, you know, broadly similar to that of the United States. Um, Nigeria also has had periodic. Uh, systems involving Sharia law. Uh, in 1999, when there was the return to, to civilian rule, uh, northern states, you know, majority Muslim northern states, uh, claiming authority under the kind of federal principle, began to implement what they called full Sharia. So Sharia codes that would uh, have not only kind of, uh, you know, family and personal status law, which had already been, you know, in practice in the region, but also uh, you know, criminal penalties and, and so forth. Um, this was a movement that had, you know, mass popular support. Um, governors started attempting to, you know, and politicians attempted starting to, attempted to start to ride the coattails of this movement and to, um, you know, to, to gin up popular support by, by presenting themselves as pro-Sharia. Um, so Yusuf initially, you know, and Boko Haram initially kind of coalesced as a movement in that context. Um, Yusuf was, you know, somebody who was kind of a minor figure on some of the Sharia committees in his state, uh, somebody who, or one of the committees, I should say, and, you know, somebody who began to kind of come to public notice in that context. Quickly, though, he, he distinguished himself, you know, as more militant and more radical than, than the mainstream by taking a couple of different positions. One of them was his position that uh, Western style education is inherently immoral and, and represents a form of, you know, uh, moral danger and even unbelief and should be avoided at all costs. And the second was his position that uh, service in a secular government also exposed Muslims to unbelief. So he quickly kind of concluded that even though there were these efforts to implement Sharia, that uh, the state itself was uh, completely illegitimate and completely immoral and had to be overthrown. Um, he 
you know, kind of uh, waffled during a lot of his preaching, you know, about whether uh, his movement was going to be kind of a quietist one that would live, you know, within the society, but apart from it and advocate for the creation of an Islamic state or whether his movement was going to be, you know, a jihadist leading, uh, leaning, you know, violent force. Um, by, you know, and, and he had, uh, you know, from from what I could find, he had, you know, oftentimes even more hardline figures around him, you know, leaning toward that jihadist perspective from an early point. So some of them were involved in, in a, a, you know, abortive uprising in 2003. Uh, Yusuf was able to kind of, you know, shield himself from the, the fallout of that and to rehabilitate himself, you know, to some extent with, with you know, mainstream society. But uh, by, you know, the last couple of years of his life, especially after 2007, um, he came into more and more conflict with the authorities um, at the state level, at the national level. And in 2009, in the summer of 2009, some of his followers got into a clash with uh, local law enforcement. And then that escalated uh, to the point where he launched an uprising um, across multiple northern states that, that claimed over a thousand lives and, and after which he was uh, executed by police. Now, this, this of course, uh, becomes a kind of critical moment for the, the movement. Um, and we have new leadership coming in, uh, or, or at least kind of rising. Um, what was kind of the uh, characteristic features of, uh, of the kind of post uh, Yusuf Boko Haram? Uh, what does it look like under this new leadership? And, and then how is violence uh, positioned uh, as a kind of legitimate policy uh, within this, this new context? Yeah, so, I mean, Yusuf, as I mentioned, had had some, some even more hardline figures around him. Uh, he had also very likely had some, some actual experienced, you know, jihadists around him, people who had, who had you know, fought with you know, uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates or, you know, people who were kind of more steeped in, in transnational jihadism. So when he was killed in 2009, then the movement went underground and, you know, reformulated itself as kind of a, a guerrilla movement and, and also began to really emphasize uh, its presentation, its self-presentation as, as a jihadist movement. So you know, in 2010, the group reemerged under the leadership of Abu Bakr Shakao, who had been basically Yusuf's deputy. Um, the group had made, you know, or had attempted to make contact with, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda core and with, with branches of Al-Qaeda, um, you know, particularly, I should say, the, the branch in, in, you know, the Sahara in southern Algeria called Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb or AQIM. Um, you know, and here, I mean, I want to be careful because a, a good you know, portion of, of the book, especially chapter three, tries to carefully assess, you know, what these ties actually meant. And and I think a lot of analysts have gone too far and, you know, stressing Boko Haram's, you know, jihadist ties. Um, I think there's, you know, there's evidence certainly of, of, you know, collaboration and so forth. But I think Boko Haram, you know, even when it was presenting itself as this jihadist, you know, transnational jihadist actor, it was still very much a, a local movement, you know, and Shakao in particular um, was somebody who was very hard for, for outside actors to, to control. So, you know, but once they emerged, I mean, there was no longer, once they reemerged in 2010, there was no longer any question of them, 
you know, existing as a preaching movement or, or, you know, having a kind of a public role. I mean, they became a, a clandestine, you know, movement that, that carried out attacks firstly, you know, first on, on a mostly local scale and then, um, occasionally with, you know, uh, forays into, into attacking the capital and, and other targets. And over time, you know, they, and, and Shikau as sort of the, the spokesman and the main you know, person articulating this came up with a more and more kind of severe uh, ideology or, or justification for killing a wide swath of people, you know, uh, broadening from, you know, uh, politicians and, and, you know, rival Muslim clerics and, and the state and Christians to eventually include, you know, essentially the entire uh, Muslim civilian population as well. Now, uh, because this movement emerged out of this local context, uh, there was this kind of very rich and diverse religious field. Uh, what what were the local kind of uh, religious or theological responses uh, to Boko Haram um, as it transformed over time, especially after this new leadership with Shikau? Uh, what were what were other Nigerian Muslims? Uh, saying even even Salafis that might be uh, at, at kind of first glance uh, closer to to their their uh, theological positions. What what were they saying about the movement? You know, efforts to refute Muhammad Yusuf began you know during his lifetime, and, and you know, in, in my reading, you know, the debates that he had with with other Salafis were one of the main factors in in isolating him and you know, even in pushing him toward toward violence. I mean, so I mentioned earlier Jafar Mahmoud Adam, who was, uh, you know, probably the, the most famous, you know, graduate of Medina of his generation. Um, he was initially a mentor of, of Yusuf, but then, you know, broke with him, particularly over this question of, of Western-style education. So you had Yusuf arguing that, you know, such education was, was uh, tantamount to unbelief, and then you had people like Adam arguing that, no, you know, Muslims needed to to derive benefits from these kinds of systems and needed to, you know, uh, acquire the kinds of technical knowledge that that you could get from from exposure to Western style education. So, you know, even by 2004, private conversations were occurring where, you know, um, more senior Salafi figures would try to talk Yusuf out of his positions. And, you know, there are different accounts of how the conversations went. But in any case, people came away you know, pretty angry with each other. And eventually the disputes went, went public. Uh, so that was even during Yusuf's lifetime. After this, you know, reemergence under Shakao and, and this kind of violence, um, I mean, first of all, you had actually a, a pretty wide kind of agreement uh, in 2009 that authorities had, had acted correctly by, by, you know, mounting such a thorough crackdown of the movement. Um, you know, there were really only a few kind of voices that I could find really warning, okay, maybe this was handled badly and maybe there will be real consequences from this. I think, you know, uh, Salafis, Sufis, you know, mainstream politicians, mainstream religious leaders, there was kind of a consensus. And I think it was, you know, the wrong consensus and one that was proven incorrect, but there was a consensus that, you know, uh, a harsh crackdown had been the way to handle things. Then once you get, you know, this resurgence under Shakao, I think you have a few dynamics. I mean, one, there was there was a lot of fear, you know, among religious leaders and, and for good reason, because Boko Haram would come to kill its critics, you know. So I think, you know, some people concluded that 
you know, they would, uh, you know, not address the movement or, or they would speak very euphemistically about it. Um, some of those who did really criticize it, though, were, were the Salafis and, and, you know, people who had been, you know, almost on the same page theologically, you know, who, you know, if you wanted to talk about a question like, you know, the attributes of God or, or you know, whether Sufism is orthodox or not, you would find very little difference between Boko Haram and, and you know, mainstream Salafi figures. But as I said, they had broken over, you know, these core questions about Western style education, you know, government service, and, and then they broke over the use of violence, of course. So you did get some pretty thorough kinds of um, refutations, you know, theological refutations of, of Boko Haram, and then Boko Haram would, would come and, and kill those people or, or attempt to kill them. Now, one of the probably most infamous uh, events related to Boko Haram is this kidnapping of 276 girls. Can you tell us a little bit about this story? Uh, how did this fit into the narrative uh, of Boko Haram, both kind of in its political and religious objectives? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a couple of dynamics worth mentioning. I mean, one is, first of all, there had been, you know, once Shakao kind of emerged as the leader and once Boko Haram began to really systematically carry out violence, there had been another, you know, major and, and heavy-handed crackdown, which, which in my view and a lot of analysts' view, you know, really exacerbated and, and perpetuated the insurgency. As that kind of crackdown showed its limitations, there were then efforts to stand up uh, civilian vigilantes and, and civilian forces to fight Boko Haram, you know, on a very local basis. And those vigilante groups were, you know, successful to the extent of uh, pushing Boko Haram largely out of, you know, major cities, but then the downside was that they pushed them into the countryside. So the first kind of context for, you know, understanding the incident at, at Chibok is is the, you know, the way that uh, Boko Haram was, was shifting to kind of smaller towns and, and you know, a more kind of rural-based, uh, you know, insurgency. Another kind of context is, is you know, that the Chibok incident was not uh, unique in a way. I mean, it was the most dramatic. It received the most, you know, international attention, but it fit into a wider context of Boko Haram attacking, you know, these secondary schools and boarding schools, um, you know, either coming to boys' schools and, and sometimes, you know, killing most of the boys there or, or, you know, in other cases, kidnapping, you know, girls in smaller numbers and so forth. Um, on a propaganda level, I think, you know, the, the Chibok kidnapping presented some major opportunities to, to Boko Haram. I mean, you know, for one thing, of course, they, you know, they struck at a site of, of educational, you know, learning and so forth, which from the beginning had been one of their targets. Uh, they also, you know, were able to use women and girls in a, you know, a powerfully kind of symbolic way. I mean, I think that, you know, everybody, you know, around the world now understands, you know, jihadists, non-jihadists, governments, you know, non-governments, everybody understands that I think at this point that, you know, women and girls are kind of major symbols um, used by all sides in, in attempting to define, you know, uh, what Islam should be or what conflicts are or, you know, uh, just kind of what, what the trajectory of societies are going to be. And I think Boko Haram understood that and they understood the powerful kind of symbolic value of the girls. Um, Maybe finally, you know, it'd be worth mentioning, of course, that, you know, there's been a lot of analysis of Boko Haram, you know, uh, attempting to kind of cater to the needs of its young male fighters, you know. So, of course, the, you know, the appeal maybe of, of 
you know, finding wives or, or you know, sort of sex slaves for, for its young fighters was part of the attack, of course. Now, in, in recent years, there's uh, been international intervention, um, but also internal conflict within the group's uh, leadership in many ways. Um, what, how, how has the group's recent history developed? Uh, what, what are some of the kind of uh, dominant positions the leadership are trying to put forth now? You know, the, I mentioned how Boko Haram had been pushed into the, the countryside. The, the kind of culmination of that development was Boko Haram seizing a lot of, you know, mostly rural territory in, in 2014, 2015. That, you know, sort of proto-state that they set up was, was broken through a regional intervention. So the militaries of, of Chad and Niger in particular came into Nigeria and you know, dislodged Boko Haram from a lot of territory control. The Nigerian military also, you know, played a major part in that effort. Then in 2015, at a major kind of point of weakness, Boko Haram pledged affiliation, you know, or allegiance to the Islamic State. Uh, then, you know, fast forward to, to August 2016, uh, Shakao, who had been, you know, the leader, of course, of, of this, you know, of Boko Haram and, and you know, of, of the so-called, you know, Islamic State, West Africa province, uh, Shakao was effectively kind of demoted and excluded, and, and the Islamic State elevated somebody named Abu Musa Barbanawi um, to be the, you know, the leader of the uh, the West Africa province of Islamic State. Barnawi, you know, may or may not be one of the sons of Muhammad Yusuf. Um, you know, at this point, I think it's quite likely that he is, but but still waiting for sort of definitive evidence. Um, Barnawi sort of pledged to refocus the the jihad on, you know, military targets, government targets, and Christians. And he, you know, walked back significantly from the kind of, you know, uh, permission that Shakao had given to target Muslim civilians. So whereas for Shakao, if, you know, a civilian even lives and acquiesces to living under Nigerian government control, then that person becomes an unbeliever. And therefore, for Shakao, that person is a target, a legitimate target of violence. Barnawi and, and his people, at least in theory, have, have walked this back and have said, we're not going to target you know, Muslim civilians, we're going to target the state, so forth. Um, there does seem to be some you know, evidence that, that Barnawi's people are, are holding to that. They do seem to be somewhat more strategic in their choice of targets. And you know, in 2017, in particular, they've they've conducted a lot of attacks on, you know, rural military garrisons and you know military convoys traveling along, you know, roads and so forth. And um, those are concerning developments, I think, because Shakao had had isolated himself, I think, to a, a large extent. You know, even within, uh, you know, kind of potential supporters and sympathizers. I mean, he had become so extreme that I think you know, he was, he was very difficult for anybody to work with or sympathize with. And so to the extent that, you know, Barnawi and that faction are more kind of strategic and more politically savvy, um, that's something to be concerned about. So what do you see as the future of Boko Haram? Uh, where do you see it, the movement going? I, I know this is a hard question uh, to speculate, right? Especially for scholars. But uh, what, what, do you, what do you think we should be at least attentive to as, the, the, as we move forward? Yeah, I mean... So, you know, I am, I am concerned about, you know, as I mentioned, these, these rural attacks by, especially by Barnawi's, you know, faction. I think that, 
there may be, you know, a ceiling to to Boko Haram's, you know, aspirations. I don't necessarily expect them to kind of regain the kind of territory that they had in 2014. I think that, you know, Nigeria's military, the regional militaries, you know, Western powers, I think would, would do a lot to prevent that from happening. At the same time, you know, Nigerian government declarations of victory against Boko Haram have been really premature and you know, it certainly looks to me like the violence is set to continue for a long time, um, you know, particularly in certain rural areas. And, and of course, you know, Boko Haram has affected neighboring countries to a large extent, you know, especially uh, Niger and Cameroon. I think, I mean, in the conclusion of the book, I talk a little bit about, you know, some scenarios in particular kind of comparing Boko Haram to, to two other jihadist movements in Africa, you know, one of which is, is Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and the other of which is, is the Shabaab in, in Somalia. And, you know, looking at those, both both of those groups have, have kind of waxed and waned. I mean, um, you know, the predecessors of, of AQIM, you know, were uh, participants during the Algerian Civil War who, you know, found themselves really mar- marginalized and, and isolated at the end of that conflict, but then found a real foothold in, in neighboring countries. Um, so there's that kind of scenario possible for Boko Haram as well, that, you know, if they live on for a long time, that eventually their center of gravity could even shift to another country. Um, with the case of the Shabab, I mean, they they too controlled significant territory at one time, and then, you know, were, were pushed back to a great extent by, by other militaries, but they really hung on in a, in a tenacious way. And of course, even this year, there have been, you know, terrible incidents. I mean, the, the, you know, the mass bombing in, in, you know, Somalia not too long ago. And, and, you know, so I think uh, the, the tenacity of groups like this is, is something to be concerned about, particularly if they calculate that they can outlast the patience of, you know, regional militaries or, or Western governments and so forth. So, I mean, I, again, you know, I don't expect Boko Haram to build a massive territory anytime soon. I don't expect them to overthrow the Nigerian government or anything like that, but I, I don't expect them to go away either. Um, this this isn't something you particularly frame in the book in this way, uh, but as somebody who's situated both in Islamic studies and religious studies, um, the book seems really uh, fruitful for, for kind of contextualizing or, or thinking about in more kind of complex ways. Uh, this idea of religious violence, um, I, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering if you have any any thoughts on this. Um, could you imagine uh, how this book might be used uh, to think about uh, religious violence as a as a kind of conceptual category? Thanks. Yeah. No. I mean, thanks for saying that. And I, I mean, I've I've been thinking about this a certain amount. I think. I mean, one thing is, you know, I feel like the the debates around religious violence, especially in, in, you know, journalism, but even to some extent in, in academic scholarship, I mean, those debates often get framed around questions of individual belief. So, you know, this question, I mean, do, do people really believe the ideologies that they profess or not? In a way, you know, the, the book is an attempt to kind of short circuit that debate, you know, in particular by bringing in this notion of the religious field. I mean, whether or not we think people believe what they say, you know, we can still talk about the environment that they exist in and, and religious kind of infrastructures are, are a part of that environment. You know, Boko Haram would not have uh, had the opportunities it did to build a mass constituency without the infrastructures, you know, physical and, and intellectual of, of the broader Salafi movement. I mean, without the infrastructure of, 
you know, mosques and, and, you know, distributors of recordings and, and, you know, lecture circuits and so forth. I mean, Muhammad Yusuf would not have been able to achieve his initial prominence. So I think this idea of the religious field can be, you know, helpful in, in thinking through, you know, where religious violence comes from. I also think that groups like Boko Haram deserve a bit more, you know, attention because I think some, you know, a, a significant amount of the literature on, on, religious violence, it seems to me, focuses on kind of, you know, cult-like groups that are totally, you know, that are relatively small, that, that don't, you know, necessarily have kind of, um, you know, broad bases or, or, you know, that don't necessarily have a complicated role in their respective religious field. Um, I think that, you know, Boko Haram in a way can, can maybe tell us more about you know, where certain kinds of religious violence comes from, because it wasn't, you know, it didn't necessarily start as just some kind of isolated, you know, cult. Again, it started as, as part of a much broader kind of constituency. Well, it's it's a wonderful book, and your your first book was also uh, excellent. Thanks. Uh, I'm inspired by how, how productive you've been in such <laughs> a short time. Thanks. Uh, which uh, kind of sparks the next question. Uh, hopefully you've taken a little bit of a break, uh, but... I'm sure you've you've continued on with uh, your your kind of scholarly work. So, could you tell us a little bit about the types of things you've been working on, or things we might hope to uh, read or or learn from you in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I have gotten you know interested in in some of these broader questions about jihadism and and local politics, and so that's that's the project that I'm working on now is uh, looking at um, you know the particularly Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, but also, you know, more local jihadist movements in, in Mali and Libya, um, and to some extent throughout the Sahel region. Um, so I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to be a fellow at the Wilson Center this year uh, here in Washington. And so I've been, been working on that project and trying to, you know, in a way like the Boko Haram book and its emphasis on the city of Maiduguri, I've been trying to look at other kinds of hyper-local environments and, and Think about the interaction between jihadism and local politics in, in such settings. Well, Alex, good luck with all your uh, your future work, and I hope uh, people will, will pick up this book. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate being on. Yeah, real pleasure. That was my conversation with Alexander Thurston about Boko Haram, the history of an African jihadist movement published with Princeton University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. We'll catch you next time.